Welcome to Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In previous episodes, I've highlighted instances of the Gospel writer riffing off of other ancient Israelite texts. For example, when in chapter 5, in the passage commonly known as the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, he is riffing off of Isaiah 61, in which those who mourn is a parallel phrase with other phrases naming those who are poor, oppressed, and in prison. So we know that those who mourn is a poetic phrase understood by the original ancient audience to mean the poor and the oppressed, because it would bring to mind Isaiah 61. The Gospel writers often used phrases like that, phrases that would quickly bring up images or whole passages or stories in the minds of their audience, much the same way that some phrases might do that for us today. I find that for people in my generation or older who were raised in the United States, The phrase, on the grassy knoll, evokes the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. For many younger people, or for people not raised in the U.S., on the grassy knoll may sound like a generic phrase that wouldn't refer to anything in particular. But it has a very specific reference for us. You can probably think of other phrases that evoke events or stories, especially Phrases from movies or songs. One example from a movie that comes to mind is this quote. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. When that is said, for many people, it immediately brings to mind the movie The Princess Bride. We remember the context of that phrase and how it was said, and that phrase has been repeated by people over and over because it was so memorable simply because it was well-placed, well-delivered, and occurred in a very successful movie. The same sort of thing, minus modern technology, of course, happened in the ancient world. In fact, it was more true for people in antiquity that simple phrases could evoke whole stories or passages of texts because they had much, much fewer texts than we do. We live in an era of an abundance of texts. And I'm not just talking about written text. I'm talking also about songs and movies and videos and articles that we read online. We are constantly bombarded with new ones. The news gives us daily, sometimes hourly, new stories. There are so many that it is actually, compared to previous eras, much more difficult for a line or phrase to be evocative for us. There are just too many texts. And yet, some phrases still do that for us. In antiquity, before the printing press, before TV, radio, and the internet, there were a lot fewer stories, a lot fewer texts that circulated, and therefore the ones that they had were repeated often, and people knew them more deeply. In fact, you might notice that much of the Hebrew Scriptures is written in poetic form in a form with cadence and poetic features that would make it more memorable. 
so it was much more common for simple phrases to evoke whole parts of texts in the minds of the hearers. In the passage today, there will be several phrases and images which might seem generic to us, but would have evoked for the original audience one of the foundational stories of their nation. It is a text that the Gospel of Matthew has already used several times and will continue to be a background text of liberation for this liberation story. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. For the second time in this story, Jesus makes a sea crossing, but this time the disciples start out without Jesus. Let's read Matthew 14, 22 through 32. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, He was there alone. But by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There is a lot of imagery in this passage that would have evoked for the original audience a theme of the Exodus. And I should also mention here that evoking memories of the Exodus story to speak of current or future liberation was not an innovation by the author of Matthew or any of the other gospel writers. The prophets often used Exodus imagery to speak of Israel's current or future liberation. So by evoking Exodus imagery, the gospel writer is using a common, and for his audience, a recognizable literary device. This passage in Matthew speaks of the crossing of a sea, which is the foundational image for an Exodus motif, but perhaps not enough on its own. The passage tells us that Jesus comes to his disciples in the early morning. The verbiage in Greek seems to echo the verbiage in the Greek version of Exodus 14.24, which speaks of God's salvation for the Israelites coming in the early morning, 
when they are crossing the sea in their exodus out of Egypt. In Matthew, Jesus comes walking on the water. That might not sound like Exodus imagery to us, since the Exodus story tells us that the Hebrew people walked through the sea on dry ground after God parted the waters for them. But the Hebrew texts that celebrate the Exodus event have God walking on the sea or making a way through or on the sea. And many texts celebrate God trampling over the sea in an image of God's victory over the empires. So Jesus walking on the sea would have evoked all these subsequent texts about the Exodus, as well as the imagery of God trampling on the sea in victory over the empires of this world. Jesus' words in this passage also echo the Exodus story. He says, Do not be afraid. This sounds generic to us, but it is used in one of the main Isaiah texts that uses the Exodus story to talk about Israel's liberation from a foreign empire. This phrase is not only used repeatedly in Isaiah 43 when God promises to deliver Israel through the water, a recalling of the Exodus story. It is also a major theme in the Exodus story itself, in which Moses has to overcome his fear to lead his people out from slavery in Egypt. But perhaps the phrase that most evokes the Exodus story is the phrase that precedes, do not be afraid. A phrase also used in Isaiah 43 and, more famously and more importantly, in the original Exodus story. And that is the short phrase, I am. In this passage in Matthew, Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. Most English translations, including the NRSV, which I read, translate I am as it is I. So the whole thing comes out, it is I, don't be afraid. But the actual words in Greek echo God's self-identification in the Exodus story. I am. Jesus says here in Matthew, I am. Do not be afraid. And finally, Jesus saves Peter by stretching out his hand. This phrase occurs repeatedly in the Exodus story as Moses and Aaron stretch out their hands to perform signs and bring plagues on Egypt so that Pharaoh finally lets the Hebrew people leave the Egyptian empire. And then Moses stretches out his hand again to part the waters of the sea. So we get a series of phrases and images that would evoke for the original hearers the story of Israel's escape from the Egyptian empire. In addition to all that, the image of someone walking on the sea is one that comes up in the Maccabean books as well. 2 Maccabees 5.21 states that Antiochus Epiphanes, the emperor of the Seleucid Empire that oppressed Israel, thought he could walk on the sea. The larger passage reports that Antiochus Epiphanes, and that Epiphanes part, by the way, is a title that proclaims that this Seleucid emperor is the divine image in our midst. The larger passage 
reports that Antiochus Epiphanes robbed the temple treasury in Jerusalem, and then the narrator proclaims, So Antiochus carried off 1,800 talents from the temple and hurried away to Antioch, thinking in his arrogance that he could sail on the land and walk on the sea, because his mind was elated. I also want to point out that in 2 Maccabees 9.8, Antiochus Epiphanes thought he could command the waves of the sea. We hear echoes of that text in the first sea crossing in Matthew in chapter 8, where Jesus commands the sea to be calm. And then also in this passage today, at the end of the passage, when he just gets in the boat, the sea calms down as well. Again, the sea as a stage for imperial claims seems to form the background of parts of Matthew's story that take place in, on, and around the Sea of Galilee. I have described in previous episodes the Roman emperor's claim on the sea, and that in ancient Israelite apocalyptic literature, the sea is where empires come from, and in the recent history of Israel, the sea was the space across which the empires came to dominate and oppress Israel. So Jesus walks on the sea, a symbolic triumph over the empire. At the end of this passage, for the first time in the story, human characters recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Prior to this, only God, the devil, demons, and the narrator have called Jesus the Son of God. The title Son of God, as I have mentioned in previous episodes, was a title claimed by kings and emperors in that part of the world during antiquity and in the first century was specifically and prominently claimed by the Roman emperor. So Jesus walking on the sea evokes Israel's seminal story of liberation from empire and symbolizes his victory over the empires, and so he is worshipped as Son of God. The disciples recognize Jesus not the Roman Emperor, as the Son of God. When the disciples first start out on the sea, the wind is against them, and the boat is battered by the waves. This sounds somewhat like the first sea crossing in chapter 8, though a little less intense. Jesus calmed the sea in chapter 8, but now that the disciples are alone, without Jesus, the winds and the waves pick up. The winds of the empire are against them. But then Jesus comes walking on the water, symbolizing his dominion over the sea, his dominion over the empire. But the victory is not finished. Jesus can lead the way, but others have to follow. Peter is the first to express his desire to follow. He's always the first. He steps out of the boat, walks a few steps, but then he notices the wind and has to be rescued by Jesus. I can hardly think of a better metaphor for the kind of faith necessary for overcoming an empire than walking on the water. Overcoming the empire, or any system of domination, seems almost impossible to us, as impossible as walking on the water. In fact, few believe that it can be done, and very few answer the call to attempt it, and even those who do easily become discouraged. 
And I admit that I doubt that it is possible. The umpire and its systems of domination seem too strong and too pervasive to me. It does seem to me like walking on the water. Is it possible to overcome a system of endless war, a system of endless consumption that is predicated on human suffering and natural resource depletion and environmental destruction when the whole economy is driven by profit? How can we get away from all that, overcome it, and build a new society, build a new world? Through this story, Matthew's Jesus tells us that it is somehow possible. It is possible to overturn all the current systems of domination and create a new, sustainable world of justice and peace. It is possible to walk on the water, to cross the sea to liberation in our promised land. Let's continue with verse 34 to the end of the chapter. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. After the people of that place recognized him, they sent word throughout the region and brought all who were sick to him and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Again, the crowds come to Jesus for healing, and like the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage in chapter 9, they touch the hem of his garment. And just like in that passage in chapter 9 about the hemorrhaging woman, the narrator uses a Greek word that usually gets translated as save rather than heal or cure. But here the translators translated as heal because of its context. The people touch the hem of Jesus' garment and are saved. This verb that often gets translated as save connotes in the ears of modern Western Christians a hyper-individualistic spiritual salvation. But in the ancient world, it meant something more like to deliver or to liberate. It connoted the sociopolitical dimension of the situation. Kings and emperors often took the title of Savior as part of their propagandistic attempt to communicate that they were the people's rescuers and protectors. So, for the original audience, this verbiage would give this passage about the healing of the crowds a more sociopolitical tone. The reader should wonder why the author has chosen to use this word here rather than the usual word for healing. There seems to be some connection to the passage about the hemorrhaging woman, but I haven't figured it out yet. If you have an idea, email me at subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Subversivewisdom at gmail.com. So yes, that's a first for this series. I have never done that before. But there it is. If you have any thoughts about this, email me. Another intratextual connection is that this word is used in both sea crossings in Matthew. In the first sea crossing, the disciples wake Jesus up to ask him to save them. In the second sea crossing that we have just looked at, Peter cries out for Jesus to save him when he starts to sink into the sea. So that links these highly symbolic sea crossings to the healing of the crowds. In both cases, they are being saved from the empire. 
The disciples are saved from the imperial sea. The crowds are saved from the ravages of empire on their health. As I've mentioned many times in previous episodes, the ruling classes of the empire hoarded food and caused food shortages, leaving many of the common people malnourished, resulting in high rates of disease and disability. Jesus' healing ministry saves them from that. Then there is also the matter of touching the hem of Jesus' garment. The word for hem here can also be translated fringe and may refer to the fringes that ancient Israelites were commanded in Torah to wear on their clothes. Numbers 15, 37-41 reads, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them to make fringes on the corner of their garments through their generations and to put a blue cord on the fringe at each corner. You have the fringe so that when you see it, you will remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and not to follow the lust of your heart and your own eyes. So you shall remember and do all my commandments, and you shall be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. These fringes can still be seen on clothing worn by some Orthodox Jewish men today. It is possible that the author of Matthew intends for us to recognize this detail of Jesus' clothing as a mark of his commitment to Israelite law and tradition, and that this commitment is central to his healing and saving work to deliver his people from empire. Notice in the Numbers passage the mention of the liberation from the Egyptian empire. In the very next passage, Jesus' commitment to his nation's law and his people's traditions will be challenged by the scribes and the Pharisees. And that will be the topic of the next episode. Until then, my name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by David Martin and Bob Nolte. Please spread the word about this podcast and rate us and leave reviews wherever you can to draw more people to this podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through PayPal. Just send the money to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. You can also send questions or comments or encouraging words to that same address, subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Thanks to all of you who have supported this podcast uh, financially and through encouragement and in other ways and who have spread the word and who have left ratings and reviews. Thanks for all that. This has been episode 36 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.